Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this Waits. is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories. I'm talking to Jim Saylor. Jim is an independent consultant and a startup mentor with the Cradle Fund in Malaysia. Jim, thanks for joining me today. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. So are, do you live in Malaysia as well? Uh, yes, I do. I've been living in Kuala Lumpur now for, well, just over five years. Wow, that's a long time. And where are you from originally? I'm originally from the United States, uh, from Wisconsin. Um, I haven't lived in the United States since 1992, though. I, I, uh, I went and I spent about the first 20 years of my career in greater China, um, spent about uh, uh, um, seven years in Shanghai before coming over to, to Malaysia. So you went to China in 1992. I actually went to Taiwan first in Fair 1992, enough. and then uh, yeah, and then I just didn't really come back. I, I, I had studied um, Chinese in in school and had come over in 1990 actually to do a, a summer program to uh, on my Mandarin. Uh, came back after I graduated in 92, gave myself a year to, to find a job, and I, I managed to do it in about 10 months, I think. And uh, yeah, and then I just I just kind of went from there. So when I went to college, you and I must be a similar age, right? So when I went to college, I made a radical decision, at least it seemed radical to most of the people that I knew back then, to study Japanese, right? To go to Japan ah. and study Japanese. And, and it was easier then to do... In retrospect, right, to study Japanese because the Japanese economy was ascendant in the mid-80s. They were buying things like Rockefeller Center and Pebble Beach Golf Course. But to go and study Mandarin was really edgy. That's uh, it, It's really interesting that you say that because my original intention was to study Japanese. <laughs> sure. Um, and uh, I was going to the University of Wisconsin uh, in Madison and... Uh, um, signing up for for language programs, and I I'd been I'd done a was doing a business degree, but decided I'd kind of been taking some Asia studies courses out of interest, and then right. kind of real, realized that if I took a, a language, I could pick up a second uh, degree. So I had to take a, I had to choose a language, and and my first choice is actually Japanese for 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 the reasons that you said. I mean right. that was kind of the hot hot thing. This was kind of you know late eighties, and. Uh, they, there was a line that went around the block to get mm. into the J Japanese class. And that is so great. Across the hallway was this little table with two people <laughs> si signing up people for Mandarin class. <laughs> a lonely I, table with nobody, right? Yeah. It's exactly what it was. And I said, well, I'm interested in Chinese too, so, you know, why not? And, and boy, you know, it's one of those, one of those, uh, decisions that really, really changes your life in the end. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, to be fair, I tell the story where I was walking around my dormitory my freshman year, right? I, w I had already signed up for French. I'd studied French in high school and, you know, French was easy, right? Um, and I was walking around my dormitory my freshman year and there were these ladies and men sitting in a room studying kanji. And I thought, oh my God, that looks fascinating. <laughs> I wonder what that is. And I walked into the dorm room because I'm not shy. And I said, what are you guys studying? And they're like, oh, it's just Japanese. And I said, I have to do that. And I signed up for that class. But it was easy, you know, it was easier then. And I, I often wonder, like, how my life would have been different if I'd studied Mandarin instead. Because for me, I was – the job market was automatic, right? I went to Morgan Stanley. They sent me to Tokyo. And I lived in Japan for 20-something years. But for you, it must have been harder, right? Because there was no China business back then. As yeah, there is today, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was sort of, you go, went, went over to Taiwan. I mean, it was 1992, you know, and, and it was actually, 
Um, the U.S. was in a recession. It wasn't a, a very exciting time to be there. And, and uh, I'd had this great experience uh, being a student in, in Taiwan a couple years earlier. And so I just decided to put on the backpack and, and go and, and see what I could do. So, you know, traveled across Europe, across Asia, wound up back in Taiwan and uh, and just just started knocking on doors, basically, to try to find somebody who, who might want to hire somebody like me. And it took a while. But I finally, I, I you know, I actually got in very very much by chance with a uh, marketing research company, which uh, at that time, you know, I'd studied marketing as my uh, as my main major in school. And it was an area that was interesting to me. And uh, and the, the company was called Frank Small and Associates, which eventually was bought by that was an Australian company, which was bought by a French company, which was then bought by a British company and then another British company. And it's now TNS Cantar. Right. And uh, and so I stayed I stayed with them for 17 years, uh, you know, from that entry level position that I stumbled into in, in Taiwan and, wow. and uh, work, worked in in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, uh, in China. Um, I was part of the group that started up TV audience measurement in China, which was really exciting in the sort of mid to late 90s, um, then eventually became the managing director of Greater China. And then was you know based there for for quite a while in in Shanghai. So yeah, it's 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 just uh, sometimes you know I I'd like to say that it was all it was all well planned out from that moment that I started studying Madrid, but it didn't really. Some of these things just happen. Yeah, I don't think it really ever is that well planned out. And I'll I'll tell you a funny story, but then I want to go back to your experiences in China. I worked with a guy at Morgan Stanley whose name was Jim Baker. Jim was from Texas and he did something similar to you. He went to Taiwan. He, um, you know, he studied Mandarin, which like I said back, he's older than I am. He's probably four or five years older than I am. So even then it was really, really rare. And when he got hired at Morgan Stanley, he sat in the offices in New York and the guy said, you know, look, it's, you know, you have these skills, you studied business, whatever, and we'd like to send you to Tokyo. And Jim looked at him and said, that, that, that's great. I'm not against going to Tokyo, but I don't speak Japanese. I speak Chinese. I speak Mandarin. And the guy, this is a managing director back then. The guy literally said to him, Japanese, Chinese, same thing. You're going on a plane tomorrow. <laughs> but that was the level of, that was the level of yeah. discourse and knowledge back then. <laughs> yeah. It's changed so much. Hasn't you think? It? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although that, that being said though, I, I still, I, I am still surprised sometimes, you know, when, Dealing with um, with with newcomers, let's say business newcomers to right. Asia, yep. companies from the U.S., from Europe, and so on that are investing here or starting up here. How yeah, I think now most people would know that Japanese and, and Chinese is a different language, but how much do they know about the differences between, say, investing in a Thailand versus a Malaysia versus Indonesia? Still, still very very little knowledge. That's there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and that's and frankly, that's one of the reasons we talked about this a little bit off the air, but that's one of the reasons why we do this. So, you know, there's a market gap i think that we're trying to fill and that gap is nobody really knows what's going on in asia and in southeast asia from a business perspective and this grew out of us trying to get the venture capitalists in the united states to invest in companies you know in thailand right or in even if they're based in singapore and the response we got was the same is that that sounds like a great opportunity but we don't have enough visibility their words yeah. not mine on what's going on there and because of that we can't make that investment so that alone was the impetus for me to say okay well we have to create that visibility using media for people so people can understand like what your experience was like you know 1992 is a long time ago in business years right i mean sure none of us are that old but still 
I'm really curious what it was like going into China, going into Taiwan, and just trying to get stuff done, even as a Mandarin speaker. Right? I, I'm mm. really always really interested in how people adjust to sort of cultural changes. Yeah. Yeah, what was that yeah, like, we, particularly from a, a market research and a marketing research perspective? Yeah, it, it, it was interesting, you know, and, and I remember this in, in, in both Taiwan and, and in, in China as well. Um, the, the trying to sell research to Chinese companies, um, the shock on their face of saying, why, why would we believe that a foreigner would know more about our market than we do? You know, that was just such, it was right. just such a cultural barrier, you know, this whole sort of concept of somebody who doesn't have the same connections, who doesn't have the same uh, roots within the country. How could you possibly be able to tell us anything about our consumers? You know, and and you know that that was that was one of the biggest hurdles to to overcome. And so in those days, a, a large bulk of the work we were doing was for for the big multinationals. You know, the Unilevers, the P and Gs, the Fords. You know, these these types of companies. Um, but it changed over time, and and I think it was it changed really rapidly. And the, doing market research in in Taiwan and China in the 90s i think was and in, in in i would say even into the 2000s was was a wonderful experience partly just because it, the economies were booming and moving so fast and there was just so much going on and then there was suddenly this hunger for information and if you're in in, in a in a business that sells information that sells advisory services and so on it was the right place at the right time um I think it was also interesting, you know, in terms of hiring people and finding people that wanted to work in research because it was something so new. Um, I, I remember those early days, the people that we would hire. I mean, we would get I remember at one time we had three German majors, which was really kind of weird, you know, within a Taiwanese, you know, all, all from Taiwan because they were the kind of people who, who couldn't get jobs elsewhere. I guess. They, I mean, not I mean, you know, and I, I don't mean that from a. Uh, ability point of view because they were fantastic but they weren't those sort of straightforward right they weren't um, engineers basically right they weren't engineers they weren't accountants they weren't so they were you know they weren't uh the, the sort of traditional businesses didn't always know what to do with them and so you know we we brought a lot of people into the organization like that yeah it was a very very different times what was it like so what had to happen where you know you're toiling away and I saw this in a bunch of places myself as well, but like where you're toiling away, you know, doing work, doing market research, selling that research to P&G, selling it to Ford, and then you wake up. It's not one day, but boy, it must have felt like it. And then everybody, you know, and some people care, but then everybody cared. Like what, what yeah. changed? And did you sense it right away or was it this wave that came slowly? Yeah, it, it came slowly. I mean, I think, I think what, um, you know what really changed it for me in particular and and because you know your japan was always a big market research buyer um it was you know it was a huge it still is a huge market research market and right. most of the other countries in asia were very small i mean we had you know some places you know, australia new zealand that, that punch above their weight and and uh, uh some other countries that that were spending but it was still pretty small in the 90s and really i think it was china that changed it i mean suddenly you know the scale of china and and that the kind of dawning of an understanding that we know nothing about this place there are cities here of 10 million people that we've never heard of yeah and, you know, and I think once that once the scale of that started coming in and once people started seeing the economic success that was coming there. Now, 
in the in the 90s and this is china china still fascinates me this way i mean china especially chinese consumers were still very poor uh there was still very little that they could actually consume let's say from a from a western multinational point of view but those numbers just got into everybody's head and it got to be you know the, this this you know the the boards boards of directors in in new york and in london and elsewhere started saying we started asking, what's our China strategy? Right. And once that happened, once that, that sort of change from the top happened, now that there was a lag time before that actually translated into a lot of these companies making profits in China. But that was where for us in the market research industry, where things really started to change. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? So we, even back in 1991 or 92, I can't remember when, when it was, but we as, you know, participants in the financial market started thinking, should we buy options, right? Because it's a really cheap way to mm. buy anything on development in, I think it was Guangdong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to be fair, I still don't even know where that is. And I didn't know where it was then, but I bought some options. <laughs> but we were just north of Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we were, we were too, we were way too early. Um, yeah. like probably by a decade and a half, but still it was still in our minds, but you're right. It took so long for that to happen. And I also like this idea that. You know, there are more cities of probably five to 10 million people in China than anywhere else in the world. And they're all growing really quickly too. Like yeah. I was talking to somebody a few days ago about what's it called? The greater Bay region, which is just a renaming and a rebranding of the Pearl River Delta, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think this guy, Tony Verb was telling me that there's something like 160 million. It has to be more people living there. And there's an economy there of $1.3 trillion. Yeah. Just yeah. something insanely I mean, large, or maybe it's going to be that by 2030. I can't remember, but it's just really large there. That's right. That's right. And, and, and then, and then when you move, if you, when you move west from there and you get into Sichuan province and places like that, which are actually the most populous places in China, um, you know, there's still, there's still a lot of that, that country that I, 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 I would say we're beyond the tip of the iceberg for China. For but sure. We certainly, but we certainly uh, are nowhere near saturation in terms of so many different things. And, and I think this is where, you know, the, the next level of acceleration came with mobile technologies, you know, with, with what's happening now, I think, in terms of, of the uh, technology ecosystem now in China. Yeah, so I presume this is something you, – you've taken a break from this, right? So you're no longer doing market research at a big firm. Is that That's correct. Yeah, you're in, well, doing this independently, right? Yeah, so um, I guess so. I like I, like I said, I spent about seventeen years with with TNS, which is really consumer research, and you know, in, in, in covering a lot of different things. We we did technology research, we did healthcare, we did automotive. It's a big you know, it's a big company, so we had our fingers in a, in a lot of different things. Um, I I I took a, a break from there. Uh, left left that left that organization in about 2009 2010. I spent a couple of years as a headhunter for uh, Russell Reynolds Associates, working on sea level recruitment in China, which was fascinating. Wow! Um, for doing, you know, uh, it was trying to find Chinese candidates to fill sea level. Um, yes. Wow. Generally, I mean, it could be, it could be, it could be others, but generally speaking, it was, you know, especially at that time, um, a lot of people were looking. And this was a lot of time when a lot of companies were shifting their expat management out of China and uh, putting in uh, uh, local management. Yeah. So that was it. That was a, it. Was a really, really interesting job in many ways. But I, but I kind of missed the, the market research stuff. So I, when I was uh, recruited into IDC. Uh, International Data Corporation, which is yep. a technology market research firm, 
Uh, I, well, a couple of different things. I'd spent, you know, about 20 years in, in China, greater China by that point, and I was, um, looking, looking to, to expand my Asian horizons, and this job came along to say, uh, to, to be the head of ASEAN, to Southeast Asia, for IDC. I thought that's sort of like an interesting idea, and that's, that's when I moved down here. And I did that, uh, ran, ran the Southeast Asia business for IDC, uh, covering, uh, you know, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, et cetera. Uh, Philippines and the and and also starting up new businesses in in Myanmar, Cambodia, uh, some some fun stuff there, um, and then actually you know through this through all of through all of this and through what I've been doing I've been uh, kind of picking up on and, and reading and, and understanding a little bit more about uh, behavioral economics and behavioral science um, because I sort of after my twenty plus years of doing market research, doing recruitment work, uh, working in, in management jobs, I, it suddenly dawned on me that what was interesting me about what I was really doing is, is the human behavior side of it. You know, right. How do consumers behave? How do candidates behave? How do uh, people's, how does behavior change with the, with the introduction of technology? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with behavioral economics, but this is kind of, you know, it's kind of become this, this trendy topic now. Richard Thaler just won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work in behavioral economics, combining concepts from economics, psychology, neuroscience, and so on in, in terms of trying to, trying to better understand, uh, human behavior and human decision making. So I took some time off and, and went and did some academic work at the London School of Economics and uh, just have, have completed that. And now I'm, I'm, I'm working on applying uh, some of the concepts of behavioral science to uh, technology adoption, to technology management, and how that then affects human behavior going forward. So have you chosen to do that only? I mean, that's fascinating, right? But have you chosen to do that only in the startup world? We mentioned earlier that you're doing some mentoring and some advising through Cradle. How does how does that work, and how would those things go together? Yeah, I mean, well, I would say they're 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 not mutually exclusive. They they I, I am doing things uh, that part of it, the the mentoring work that I'm doing through Cradle, and 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 for those not familiar, Cradle is a is a fund. It's a government sponsored fund here in Malaysia. Uh, that is, you know, it's, it's a semi-government organization that, that basically works in, in funding, uh, technology startups here in Malaysia. Uh, it's been around for quite a long time and they have a, a, a coach and grow program where they, they link up entrepreneurs here with experienced business people to, to coach them through the, the startup and scale up phase. Uh, so I've been, I've been working on that now for, for the last few months. Um, but in a, the behavioral science part of it, part of that is, because uh, is is with these startup companies, but it's also with more established companies and working with, for instance, uh, CIOs in bigger organizations uh, to help them to understand more specifically how to manage risk within their organization. And uh, the the specific uh, behavioral science is, is is a pretty broad field, and it looks at a lot of different things. It's about nudging behavior. It's trying to get people to do uh, to do the right thing, uh, to to apply psychological um, means to to get people to do what you want them to do. That sounds a little bit like mind control, but it's not really. No, what not it is. really. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but not really, right? I mean, again, if you're looking at if you're looking at you know behavioral economics and behavioral science, right? You need to understand the way those things work so that you can create. A methodology to get people to do what you want them to do. That's not brainwashing per se. It's just creating an optimized way for people to participate in 
an economic situation in a way that makes sense for both sides, no? Very good. That's no, that's absolutely correct. You said it much better than than uh, than I could. So There's a small fee good. for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, so the, the, the specific the specific area of um, of behavioral science that I've been focused on is is the area of, of risk perception, and the the what drove me to that. I think part of what drove me to that, and 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 how this ties in with technology and how people adopt technology and how people interact with technology. When I was working with IDC, and, and IDC does a lot of work, and we, we do do a lot of work with companies and that are putting, you know, that are really uh, establishing the, the newest and greatest technologies that are out there. So well, a few years ago, that was everyone's cloud computing, mobility solutions. Now we're talking about AI and you know everything else that goes along with that. And there's there's a lot of great things happening, as you know, and there's great things happening in the startup world. There's great things happening within within larger uh, companies, but where I was seeing a disconnect is in terms of the actual adoption of some of these technologies by companies that are actually on the ground here in Southeast Asia. And even with things like uh, moving more businesses onto more, more of their businesses onto the cloud, what we found, in, in, and particularly in Malaysia, uh, which, which I thought was a little bit unusual, was that a lot of companies were resisting moving their businesses to the cloud specifically because they were worried about security risk. And we did survey after survey after survey where where the asked why why are you not using cloud technologies why are you not uh, using mobility solutions and so on and the answer would come back almost always with risk as being the the leading reason. Now, having worked here for a while and having understood a little bit about the culture here, there's nothing about Malaysia and the Malaysian business community that I could see. That would make me think this is actually the people here are actually very risk averse. They're not. And they, they certainly have not been uh, slow to adopt technology in terms of hardware. In terms of hardware, Malaysia is right up there with any country in the world in terms of where, where hardware adoption. So where is this, this, this concept of, of risk coming from? So that's when I started you know, looking into learning more about this topic of risk perception. And risk perception is a funny thing when you start thinking about it. And risk itself is a funny thing when you think about it. Because we, we talk about risk, we think about risk sometimes in terms of danger, in terms of putting ourselves in, in a risky situation. But at the same time, we reward risk. And we, we see in the business world that, that, that risk is, is very much correlated with success. So how the human brain deals with risk and then what that leads to in terms of our behavior became a really interesting topic for me. And that was actually kind of what pushed me into saying, all right, I want to go a little bit deeper into this in terms of my academic work to, to try to get a better grip on what is going on with the way people are adopting technology and the way that they they perceive the risks around new technologies. So can you talk, this is actually really interesting, can you talk more about what you've learned or just what insights you've gained around this, right? And remember that I spent an entire career, you know, trading listed securities, sometimes unlisted securities, but one of the things we talked about a lot was risk management, right? And there were whole teams sure. of people there that were associated with risk management, but also the concept of, getting comfortable with risk, right? Like, have you ever been nakedly long a billion dollars of securities over the weekend? Like, what does that feel like? And what is it, seriously though, like, what's the perception yeah. of that? Because we did run into situations, and I remember a very specific one where, you know, we did, not we, but there was a very profitable trade that was done, and somebody on another team said, oh, that trade was a layup. And I remember my boss saying, you know, in no uncertain terms, 
sure, in retrospect, taking that risk was really straightforward. But when you have that risk on and you're responsible for it, the perception of that risk is very different. So I understand the concept, but I want to understand better what you learned and how you apply that sure. now. Yeah, and I and I and absolutely, and I think people coming from from the financial world in general have a have a, a more clear uh, concept of, of risk from a probability point of view. And I think that's right. because really, when, when when it really comes down to it, when you're making a risk judgment, you're really talking about probabilities. What's the probability that this is going to go right? What's the probability that this is going to go wrong? Right. But where your where your brain starts screwing things up, or where the where the general person's brain starts well, not necessarily screwing things up, but starts making things a little bit cloudy, is that we we are affected by these biases. We're affected by you know the way that we make these these judgments of risk, which are not necessarily made uh, based on rational, probabilistic uh, decision-making processes. So I'll just give you, can give you a couple of examples from, from some of the research that I've done. There's one which is the, the conflation of risk probability and risk damage. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that, and, and actually, I'll, I'll, let, let me take <laughs> That's a, really interesting, a actually, right? In other words, what's the likelihood that this is going to happen First of all, and then second of all, if it does happen, what's my downside? Yeah, and but then what happens is that when some for, for some types of risks, especially if they are you know considered to be dread risks, something really really horrible, uh, and terrorism is is a classic example of this. You know, if we ask people people's ability to judge, what is the percentage chance that I'm ever going to encounter an act of terrorism in my life? It's right. it's minuscule, but because it, in our heads, it's so horrible and it's so out of control and it's so evil. All generally, people overestimate the the risk that that would come from a terrorist attack, and they severely underestimate the risk of dying in a car accident, right, crossing which the street, is yeah. ex- extremely common. You know, and these these this sort of and and these things are the the actual damage, the actual horror of something is actually not related at all to the probability, but our brains relate it. So we become more afraid of it because of, because of the horribleness of it. Now, how does this relate to technology? What this means is that we, you know, and especially with something like cloud, you know, people hear news stories about these, you know, hacking lost, massive loss, data hacking losses. And loss of, loss of these, these horrible things, which do happen. There's no, no denying, just like terrorism, it does happen. It's not to say that these are things we shouldn't be afraid of or that we shouldn't be worried about. But the chance of them ha- that the the horrible image in our head of what would happen if this happened shouldn't change the way that we look at it probabilistically, but it does. And so for things like cloud, uh, uh, you know, for for moving businesses onto cloud, especially for for storing documents on cloud, for for uh, putting mission critical systems on the cloud. Actually, if you're working with you know. Amazon Web Services or something like that, their security is so much better than anything that most companies could have in-house. Yet this perception of risk is altered by the fear that they have of, of, of what, what could, uh, what, what will be the, the worst possible outcome. Right. So how do you, like, how do you fix that or do you, is it fixable? Yeah. I mean, it is a good question whether it's fixable or not. And, and the, 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 it's never going to be perfectly fixable. There's always going to be people that uh, uh, are not able to make this, are not able to separate these two things. But what I'm, I've been advising some some cloud 
uh, providers uh, is is that you when you actually sit down, especially with CIOs, if you're sitting down with experts and you're able to actually explain the probabilities to them and make it clear, then that, that can help. It's not going to help for everyone, but it will help for some. Because if you're not explaining the probabilities very clear, then people are calculating the probabilities in their brain, and the human brain is not built to be an actuarial uh, <laughs> you know, type, type of system. So, so there, is, there is an information part of it, um, and, the, and I think there is a, a part of it where uh, there's an education part of it, especially when you're dealing with non-IT experts. Because one of the other uh, findings from my research is that, let's, you know, right now in a lot of organizations, uh, the purchase of technology has become much more decentralized. So now there are marketing tools for sales departments. There's marketing tools for, or sorry, there's technology tools for sales departments. There's technology tools for HR departments. There's technology tools for, for whatever. And there are people who are not technology experts who are making decisions on which tools to purchase. And the way that those people who are not IT experts, the way they, they tend to have uh, perceptions of risk that are more readily biased. And the types of biases that tend to come into to affect their view of risk, there's, there's a lot of different ones, but, but a couple of them that are very closely associated with risk perception. One is the effect bias, and that's effect with an A. And it basically what it means is the more I like something, the less risky I think it is. And this is kind of interesting when you think about it, because if we're talking about technologies and, and the research I've done has really borne this out, people love mobile devices. They love their phones. They love their iPhones. They love this. They love that. But mobile devices are actually one of the most risky technologies that a company can actually put out. If you think about it, if you've got thousands of employees and they've all got mobile phones and they're all everything... They're downloading apps from who knows where. They're, 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 they're exchanging files. They're doing all this. They're putting security at risk all of the time. But there's a very low perception of risk uh, with mobile phones because we like them so much. Um, when you start talking about things like cloud computing, which is a little bit which is kind of far away and whatever, and it's not something that sounds pretty boring to me, then we, we rate that risk as higher. So that effect bias, that effect heuristic that we use is, is, is kind of a big deal. And, and that's, you know, it's kind of, in a way, you're never going to train these things out of your brain, but you can challenge people's, uh, challenge them to, to try to ask themselves, why do I think this is a high risk product? Or why do I think this is a low risk product? That's really interesting. So, and, and I didn't understand this at the beginning, but what you're saying is you can actually advise companies, big service providing companies, whether it's cloud computing or some other thing where there's fear or risk around it. You can advise them for ways to use the data that they've accumulated, the actuarial data around what that risk really is and how it represents that risk to then do better sales for their products to consumers, whether it's at the individual consumer level, which is unlikely, but at the B2B level. Yes. For companies that are considering using their products to sort of get comfortable with the fact that it's not nearly as risky as they think they are. Yes, that's right. And and I think the other thing that you can do is if you if you've got this, that that's exactly right, and that's exactly uh, what I what I'm uh, discussing with a couple of different companies now. The other part of it is is to help them to identify through the use of their own data which companies 
are never going to be, uh, you know, they're just, they're just sort of, they're, they're just so, they are actually very risk averse or they are unreachable no matter how much accurate information you share with them. And you just sort of say, well, I'm not going to waste my time on this set of companies trying to sell them something that they're never going to buy. Where I've got another set of companies where I can say with a little bit more information and some actual actuarial information, uh, they can perhaps be convinced. And I think that's, that's really important because I think sometimes with all of the new tech that's out there and all of the new things that are happening, there's a lot of exuberance in the market. But at the end of the day, somebody's got to buy it. And uh, right. in, if, they're, if they're walking away from uh, products and services that are actually going to be extremely beneficial for their business for inaccurate views of risk, then, then there's, there's, there's a disconnect. So you brought up another interesting topic for me, and that is the use of data. So I've been in conversations recently about how data basically is overriding every decision, you know, both human individuals, right, and businesses are making these days, right? This whole concept of things yeah. being just data driven. And we'll spend a lot of time, you'll see in the future, um, on this network talking about, <clears throat> you know, things that are data driven. And I, I get the sense that everything is in a way, but how do you, how do you harness all that data yeah. to then be able to, because you're never going to be able to convince people, right? You, if you're standing on the top of a cliff and you say, it's only 100 meters from here down there, if you hold your nose and the water doesn't go up, you're not going to die when you hit the water kind of thing. There's still fear, right? And that fear is never going to go away, even if you do it once and then go to do it again. But how do you yeah. use the data to sort of make the case that cloud computing is the example that you've used, but that cloud computing is safer than not doing it because the systems that you're building internally are much more easily hackable even by somebody inside the company, potentially, than yeah. somebody outside. How do you how do you harness all that data? Yeah, I think it's I think it's it's a very good question. I think there's, um, you know, the, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to not just it, it's a cost benefit analysis, right? You know, so it's it can't just be about you know talking about the the risk side of it. It's about the potential benefits that that you're walking away from. Um, but in terms of how do you actually harness it, how do you actually show them? I think sometimes you, you need to open up the black box a little bit for some of these companies and, and sort of say, look, this, these, this is the actual data that we have. These are the actual success stories that we have from people who have been harnessing, uh, the data and, and, and you, and similar companies to yourself and, and you could be doing the same. Um, but you know, the, the, it also comes down to people too that are that will just say, "Look, I trust my gut, and my gut tells me that this is not this is not the way to go." Right. And and sometimes they're going to be right, and 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 that's you know there's there's another side of it which which you know talking about behavioral economics and this side of this irrational thinking, you know a lot of times it's the irrational thinking, it's the it's the black swan sort of stuff that that really leads to big success. Fair enough. And you know so I think that there is you know the you can't. I think this is this is kind of a uh, the, I, I would say this and this is one of the issues that I have with AI and AI dri driving everything because <laughs> because because end of the day AI is is a purely rational logical system in most cases and I think that there where where AI one of the interesting ways that AI is going to need to evolve is how do you teach AI to understand human irrationality. And that's, that's, I think, a really interesting area right now. There are some people that are doing some work on it, but there are, you know, there's, there's a whole list, probably hundreds of biases and heuristics that we use as humans to, to process data that influence our decisions that, you know, a, a, an AI system would look at and say, well, that's, you know, that doesn't compute. Um, and, you know, going, 
teaching AI systems, teaching these huge data-driven systems how to deal with the human irrational brain, I think is a big opportunity in the future. It is. And, and I didn't mean to suggest that, you know, data, data analysis and artificial intelligence were going to replace humans. I get into, I can have a pretty good argument about how I think <laughs> all that stuff's going to get used, right? Because I think it's going to be more like, you know, in a way, the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality, I think both of them are, are valid outcomes. But for artificial intelligence, I think it's just going to make humans more effective and more efficient, right? In other words, please process all the data to me, but then let me make the decision on my own. Because I do think it's going to be very difficult, at least in the medium term, to try to explain to a machine or have a machine understand what those levels of irrationality are and yeah. how they impact the decisions that we want to make regardless. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if there, there was a couple of stories that came out on this, I think last year where, uh, and, and in some experiments where they tried to teach it, I can't even remember which company it is off the top of my head, but anyway, um, maybe they didn't want to put their name off, but they were trying to teach some of these irrational behaviors to, uh, to AI systems. And they would, they had this AI that was, that was blogging and it started using all this really foul and racist language. Oh, right. I remember this. You know, there was, you know, in a way it was an experiment to sort of try to, try to right. teach the, and, and it didn't really work because it sort of said, well, you are, how do you, how can you ever get a machine to think like that? Now, maybe, maybe that is possible, but I think it's, it's beyond the realm of what's, what, what exists right now for sure. But I, I tend to agree with you. I think that the way AI is going, should be as a way to help us to be more efficient and and to uh, but to leave the final decisions to to humans. I just think that's going to happen, right? In other words, if it's not something really simplistic, like how do I get from Boston to Philadelphia in the most effective way by car? Because I, I think those decisions are going to get made by machines writ large, yeah. right? That's what autonomous yeah. vehicles are going to do. You're not going to drive there. You're just going to get into a thing. It's going to take you there. However, is the most effective way to get there. Um, but if it means like, do we release this product or that product based on historical data? I think humans are going to start to make those decisions. They're just going to have more data at their disposal. And I guess sure. the follow on to that for me is what kind of tools do you use? You know what I mean? Like you're not dropping everything into an Excel, an Excel spreadsheet and running a regression analysis, but like what kind of tools do you use or can people use to try to make some of these decisions and to understand, you know, to get back to what we were talking about before, the behavioral science um, that you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, you know, it is, but it, a lot of it is, uh, you know, especially if you're talking about the more, uh, the more heavy getting people to understand the more heavy data side of it in the end you do wind up using excel and and those types of tools quite a bit i use i use stata which is which is which is a statistical stata s-t-a-t-a which is which is a statistical to which is amazing which is which is amazingly powerful from a from a stats point of view but that's more you know there's people that you can talk to using those kind of really heavy quantitative types of tools but in the end, you need to you need to be able to tell a story. You need you need to be able to relate this to the human brain, and and a lot of that is done. You know, there's there are there are for behavioral science. A lot of it is getting people out of their automatic way of thinking and actually taking a step back. And it's the it's the thinking fast and thinking slow thing. Instead of thinking really fast about this, step back and think about how you're thinking about it. And there are some some good tools and some some good models which are a little bit more qualitative, which are are built to trigger the brain 
to think a little bit differently. Let me I, I'll, let me share one with you, which I think I, I really enjoy it, Please. and I use it a lot now. Um, so one of the one of the things with behavioral behavioral science, and one of the things that's understood now is that as humans, we have a really hard time. Uh, the, the way we think about time is really strange. The way that we, you know, the immediacy is, is, is very important to us. It's very easy for us to deal with things like risk, like danger, like opportunity that's sitting in front of us, you know, a day or a week or so. Once we start looking out, really, once we start looking out beyond three months, six months, a year, it's very, very difficult for our brains to actually think about risk at that point for, for a whole variety of reasons. Now, one of the tools that, that and this, this was, was actually a couple of uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman and, and another guy whose name I can't think of right now, uh, came up with this tool, which they call a, a, a pre-mortem. And the idea behind a pre-mortem, of course, of course, post-mortem, you know, what you do after somebody dies and you figure out what, what the heck went wrong. But the idea of a pre-mortem is, is to put people into a mindset of thinking about the future and thinking about failure in the future and what went wrong. So here's here's how it worked. Now maybe you can you can try it for yourself. So let's let's imagine it's it's 18 months from now and your business has failed. It's gone. Your bank account is drained. It it it, it really went wrong. It really tanked. Now I just want you to sit and think you're 18 months from now and you're thinking back and what were the three things that went wrong? And you just kind of, you know, it works pretty well if you do it in a group of, you know, maybe a couple of different management people. You don't let them talk about it too. You know, make them close their eyes, think about it. And it's amazing how often they will, they will kind of nail it. They will say, yeah, this is what went wrong. And, and, but it's very difficult to actually get them to that point just from a very sort of straightforward conversation. Well, what could go wrong? But you actually get them to actually think about this. You, your business has failed. Think about how you're feeling right now. Think about what your friends think about that. Think about what the media is writing about you. You know, what went wrong. So, so sometimes you, this, that's just one of, one of the, the, the types of exercises that you can do to, to tr- sort of trigger these different parts of the brain uh, to think a little bit differently. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of people do do that kind of, they do have that thought process of like, what could go wrong here? But I don't think they do it in that, in that exact way, right? Because they're not they're not incentivized to do that at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, this is where some of the, you know, and, and a lot of, there's a lot about neuroscience, actually mo- a lot about neuroscience that we don't understand. And we're just really scratching the surface of understanding it. But there, there is, there definitely is evidence that we use, we physically use different parts of our brain differently in depending on how we're thinking about things and depending on how we think about time. Um, the way we think about the past versus the way we think about the future. So the idea behind it is, is actually to get them to be using a, a physically different part of their brain, the part of the brain that thinks about the past, because thinking about the past tends to be much more analytic, tends to be you, you're used to looking back and saying, OK, let's think about this. I have data here. I can I can operate when you're thinking about the future. It's a whole different part of your brain, which is generally speculative. Right. Very speculative. And do yeah. you, and there's got to be a, a belief here that we can actually train people to use a different part of their brain to do things, right? I mean, I think the, the knowledge we have around the way people's brains works is really limited still. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a really interesting area, and 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 a lot of you know, it's also one of these areas where somebody writes a really interesting piece of research, and somebody disproves it a month later. So you know, <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's really. Yeah, but but then again, but you know, there's there are there are. Uh, if you look, you know, Google has a whole neuroscience department, all these, you know, big companies, they are spending a lot of time and a lot of effort to try to understand this better for different reasons. Um, but uh, when it's when it comes to human decision making, I think, we, again, we, 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 know, we know a little bit and we can trick our brains a little bit. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's still a very new area. But but it's but it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a gigantic opportunity for what you're going to be doing, just the merging of, you know, the data, the behavioral science, the psychology, the business, and the sort of understanding of risk. It's, all, it's almost like an untapped field. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's interesting because there has been, um, there's been more done in things, you know, there's, there are, uh, the, the nudge unit, the behavioral insights team, which is which is which started out in the UK, they now have offices in in the US and Australia and Singapore, a couple other places I think. But they working more on behavioral science from a policy uh, point of view, trying to encourage people to make better health choices, uh, encouraging people to save more money for for the retirement, things like that. You know, there's been you know a fair bit of work in behavioral science on these types of, of behavioral interventions. But in the in the area of technology adoption and technology risk perception, it's still pretty new. There's a, there's a few people out there that are that are doing some work in it, but it's it's fairly new. So yeah, I'm hoping hoping that uh, that we can make something out of it. Yeah, well, this sounds like the perfect place to end. I thought that was sure. really interesting, actually, and I get the feeling that because this topic is so large, like if you'd ever be interested in participating in discussions just on data itself and how that data gets used. Um, we'll actually be interested, we'll actually be introducing a podcast that's just called Data Driven that just talks about how data gets used across the board. You may consider participating in that conversation as well. So sure, sure. This, yeah, this was a great. great introduction to what you do. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I would be happy to join in something like that. Okay, Jim. Look, I really appreciate your time today, and thanks again for uh, for coming out and talking to us. Is there a way that people can get in touch with you so that um, they can find you and sort of maybe use some of your services as well? Well, probably as of right now, LinkedIn is, is good uh, for, for getting me. I can, I mean, I've got a couple of different email addresses. Should I send something over to you? Would that be the... That would be great. And then the other thing that you can do... Oh, is, are, are, are we still recording right we now? We are. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, but definitely, okay. definitely send something over to me. That would be great. And then we'll share it with people at the end of the show. We'll put it in the show notes. And it's. I think it's fair to talk about um, as we're still recording. But yeah, that okay. <laughs> All right, that's great. I, I I will send out that information, but uh, but it's easy to look me up on LinkedIn. Just uh, Jim Sailor, J I M S A I L O R. That's awesome, Jim. Thanks again for your time. Okay. All right. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.